Hello love, welcome. Thank you so much for dropping into Time in the Studio today, where we share behind the scenes stories of creatives and plant people and how to change, connection, and plant seeds of possibility. I'm your host, Sarah Marie Miller, artist and herbalist, and my life is constantly being transformed by plants, art, and the people around me, and these chats, which I love doing. And I hope these conversations can help you along your journey as well. I had a great time chatting with Michelle Kishta, artist, writer, and teacher, about her experiences living in Japan and how that influenced her art, how her view of artist residencies has shifted over time, and some of her residency highlights. She also discusses her experiences working with the gallerist Bridget Mayer and synchronicities that occurred that made it feel like the right choice to work with an art coach. She teaches writing and gives some great tips for cleaning up your artist statement and bio and has some great book recommendations and unconventional tips for growing tomatoes. Uh, A little bit about Michelle Kishta is she's a Philadelphia-based artist who uses colors found in nature that are not typically associated with natural colors and focuses on landscape as her primary subject. Her paintings are strongly influenced by the graphic stylizations and compressed spaces of Japanese ukiyo-e. Her paintings are in a number of private and corporate corporate collections, and her work is featured in Create Magazine and on the Poetry Foundation blog and Studio Break podcast, as well as in several literary journals. She exhibited at the Sharjah Art Museum in the United Arab Emirates and the Museum of Nonconformist Art in St. Petersburg, Russia. Kishta received both her BFA and MFA in painting from the University of the Arts. And we talk about her work, her body of work, Absent Futures, as well, with the use of shusugiban, which is burning timber. I really loved hearing more about that. That was super exciting. And yeah, it was just a great conversation. So thank you so much for being here. I also, we recorded this interview probably a month ago or so, and I just want to speak the name of Jacob Blake. And I want to send prayers to his family and loved ones and a reminder that we still need to disarm the police and, I believe, restructure law enforcement and the justice system in this country and probably the medical and education systems. They could use an overhaul, too, and pretty much everything. So we have a lot of work to do. Please register to vote and please do whatever is in your power to vote And please vote for a thinking human being who is, you know, doing a little bit for, you know, a step in the right direction anyway. Okay, anyway, that's my personal opinion. And thank you so much for being here. Really excited to share this conversation with you. And please be sure to reach out to Michelle Kishta on Instagram. And you can connect with me there as well. Time in the Studio podcast. Thanks again. I lived in Japan for two years, but before that, Japan was never sort of on my mind as a place I wanted to go. And then I had a friend named Michiko, and she was this really amazing person, and she taught me a lot about like tea ceremony and the language. 
and it made me want to go to Japan. So I moved there. I lived there for two years. I taught English to um, elementary and junior high school kids and adults. And uh, yeah, and well, my husband's Japanese too. But when I came, it really wasn't like thinking about art. Obviously, like this is an old piece behind me. Nobody can hear, nobody who's listening can see this. <laughs> but, you know, you can kind of see the beginnings of what I'm doing now. It's just more painterly. And uh, it really wasn't until I came back from Japan and I started working at an auction house. I slowly worked my way to be a Japanese specialist because I could translate the prints for them. And so, and then I started, you know, looking at them every day and working with them every day. And so it led to the beginnings of a career. And, And it was having those pieces around me all the time that was probably one of the strongest influences on like the use of space and the graphic details and patterning. So Mm -hmm. that's definitely a part of the work. That's a one part of the work. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, I can see it in like a lot of different layers and ways, just the way that you're really incorporating the space and then your colors. A lot of it reminds me of kind of like Japanese scroll work and the use of gold and metallics and yeah I could just see it in a lot of different aspects within your work so I was curious about that that's so amazing that you live there is that where you met your husband when you lived yeah oh yeah I lived in a small fishing village in Chiba and his father was the mayor of the town that I lived in so yeah that's how we met so amazing yeah and I you know It was, you know, living in Japan, it's a fun place to visit, you know, and, but it takes a special kind of person to stay there all the time. And, you know, it's very different. And I definitely had a lot of, um, you know, what's that called? You know, like cultural, what's that called? Oh, anyway. I I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely had culture shock. It was very, you know, when you're living there and you have to engage, you really are in the culture and, you know, things that we, you really understand who you are as your culture when you're pushed so far in a different direction, you know, and I could see who I was so much more clearly after that, you know, good and bad, Yeah, you know. I can definitely see that. I lived in Poland just for like a little over a month. I wasn't really living, but I was there for an artist residency. And yeah, I could feel there is something about that. Like when you're pushed up against other ways of doing things that you've never done in that way, it does like kind of bring like a big mirror to your face. Yeah. And this is what my culture is and my country is. Yeah. Yeah. But that can happen even anywhere. That can happen in your own country, just going to a different state, you know. And and I think, you know, that that's a really important thing, too, because I think if you're an artist, and I, I didn't think this, I can tell you initially, I wasn't one of those people who wanted to go on residencies. I wasn't somebody who wanted to leave 
the comfort of my own studio. You know, people are like, oh, residency this and residency that. And why do you want to pack up all of your stuff and go to a new place that you don't even, you know, you can't even take everything with you. Why do you want to do this? And I was only thinking about it in this very like two dimensional way. I wasn't thinking about the total. And when I, my first residency was in New Mexico and it was almost like, it wasn't, but it was almost like a homestead situation. You know, I was getting up in the morning and I was chopping wood and I was building a fire so I could stay warm and the oil had run out. So I was cooking on top of the wood stove and, you know, so it was just like, there were all these like hardships, you know, and that really forced me in a different direction in my work because you don't have any choice, right? And then I went to Russia later the next year. And, and again, you know, different culture, different working situation. I had only a desk and, you know, it pushes you into a whole different direction. And, and then I went to Iceland. So I did like these three residencies all within a year's time. And it burnt me out a little, but, but it was really important. And I'm still like mining the depths of what all of that meant. And that was two years ago. So, so I think, so I've changed my tune. So if you're an artist and you want to shake up your practice, that's what you do. You go on a residency and, you know, and I think the worst thing you can do is go on a residency and keep making the same work that you make because it doesn't make sense. It's out of context, right? Right. And so you you put you you put yourself in a situation where you can you know be out of your context and try something different and maybe fail, whatever that means, you know. But the people who go on residencies and do the same thing that they they do when they're at home, they're missing out on the bigger picture, you know. That's what I think. Yeah. Like, oh let, let it talk to you, right? Let the space talk to you. Let the people talk to you. Let, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. God, I can definitely feel that because I've just done a couple classes and little short residencies and I could see the people who really just like, you know, it's like the cat on the couch, like digging its claws in, like, I'm not going to do anything different. Or even people at grad school, yeah. like, I'm going to stay the same. It's like, it's very, it, it's a different experience. And I can just definitely see the benefits of kind of letting those claws just release and yeah. open up to new possibilities in the new place and the new people and new materials. And yeah. Amazing. And you can ha- hate things. Like I, when I went to Iceland, I went through this period where I kind of lost my mind, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We, I, when I was there, it was very cold, so, which I like, so I'm not complaining at all. If it was winter all the time, you'd never hear me complain. <laughs> but, you know, for the time that I was there, they had several days in a row of like overcast days and overcast in Iceland is not like a gray day in Philadelphia, you know, it's all consuming. You can't see the difference between 
the ocean and the sky. It's just everything is just this massive grayness and and it gets extra cold and it's super windy and it was just it was almost more than I could handle you know and so I spent two hundred dollars to get on a bus to go back to Reykjavik for a few days I have a friend who lives in Reykjavik and hang out with her for a few days because I needed to reset you know I did actually did something really similar in in New Mexico because I freaked out a little and had my friend come and get me earlier than when she was supposed to. And I was like, I'm leaving this residency early. I can't take this homesteading anymore. Yeah. But it was a reset, you know, in both cases, there's a reset. And when I came back, I made all this work. I must've made, when I got back um, from Reykjavik, I must've made 40 pieces after that. Yeah. They were small. They were small, but I made like 40 pieces because I, I just needed that reset. And the same thing, I got back from visiting with my friend and went back to the residency and I made 20 prints. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's so interesting that that reset can happen. And I think especially when you're in an unknown place, seeing someone who knows you and is familiar with you, I could see how that would help you feel more grounded and kind of yeah, reset and restructure your frame of mind for the place. You know, I think yeah. in this experience with the Bridget Mayer oh, yeah. MBA, I can just see the kind of rethinking your mindset is really powerful. And I think community right. is really powerful too. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's great about Bridget, you know, I did I did one-on-one coaching with Bridget in 2016, I believe. And Mm -hmm. it was really a, it was an altering experience, you know? I mean, I'm already somebody who's very, um, like I have a pretty strong mindset that goes a couple of different ways, but I definitely like to plow forward. Mm -hmm. And, and so it was really helpful, but what it made me realize is all of, are all of the things that I wasn't doing that I could have been doing. And I was almost like, oh my God, why wasn't I doing that? You know, why, why wasn't I focusing on these really important things, you know? And so I'm curious, just like what one, an example, like one thing, like what was, what were some of the things or one of the things that you kind of reframed for that? So I was like, well, it's, I don't, can I tell you this funny story? I don't know. I don't know if it's a funny story or not, but so I went to, so Bridget had this workshop and it was like $110 or something. And to be like really blatantly honest, honest with you and like whoever listens to this, I was really in financial straits, you know, and it's hard because I'm an educator and the summers were always so difficult. Like I'm like, okay, it's another ramen summer for me or whatever. And it, I can remember that the, the workshop was like $110. And I'm like, I don't know. It's really, that's a lot of money. And I just did it. I was just like, okay, but this is a chance to like listen to Bridget and like be in that audience. And so I just did it, you know? And, and I went there and some of the things like, one of the things that really, uh, 
stood out to me was about low hanging fruit. You know, there's so much low hanging fruit that we don't take advantage of in our careers that could be making us money. And, and I am not somebody who buys into the idea that artists should not have money. You know, I don't think it's a sellout. I don't, I just don't buy into that. I think we are given a gift and a talent and, you know, and we should, you know, be able to receive abundance from this thing that we have, you know? And, but anyway, so she had this sign up. She, uh, I'm telling you, Ceremony, honest to God, like, even thinking about it now, it just seems so insane to me, but I wasn't using my brain. I was kind of using my gut. And, and she had these sign up sheets for individual coaching, or you could sign up for like group coaching. I'm like, group coaching? No, I learned this much in like two hours. I need the full one-on-one. And I went up, she only had room for six people. And I went over and I signed up for it. And I look, okay, I couldn't afford the $110, let alone the amount that I was about to put myself on the line for. And I really had no way of paying it. And I wasn't sure how I was going to do it. And I'll never forget. I got the email. I was sitting in little babies, which is gone now. It was a ice cream place (laughs) in Kensington. And I got the email. I was just like scrolling through my phone. I got the email from Bridget with my bill and everything turned kind of white. And I felt like I was being washed over with broken glass. I I was having a panic attack because I didn't have that money to pay for. And I was freaking out. And then I, and so I went through this, (laughs) I went through this whole thing all the way home from like, from the, from the ice cream place to the, on the drive home, I would go through like these, like, panic attacks and then calming myself down everything's gonna be fine you're gonna figure it out it's gonna be fine we got this we got this and then oh my god what am I doing I don't what the hell did I just do and like you know she's gonna disrespect me and I can't pay for it I'm gonna have to tell her like I just went through all these emotions on the way home and when I got home I saw my neighbor sitting on the front steps and she had always talked about how she wanted a piece for her house. Mm-hmm. And so I went up to her and I said, Hey, I have this amazing opportunity to work with a business coach that could really change my art career. And I know that you were always interested in having a piece of mine. And I would love if you could come to the studio and take a look and maybe get something and help, you know, you would have something for your house and I could take this business coaching. And she was like, wow, my anniversary is this month. That would be great. And I was like, okay, great. And so she's like, yeah, let's do it. And so, and then I, I am not even kidding you. I turn to put the key in the door and I hear somebody saying my name, yelling my name. I turn around. It's one of my neighbors, one of my other neighbors, Michelle, Michelle, we stopped by on Friday, but you weren't here. And we're going to London to a wedding and we wanted to buy some of your work as a wedding gift. And I was like, (laughs) okay. So right there, just in that moment, I had enough money to pay the first installment. Yeah. 
when I had nothing, That's right? Wild. And so for me, but what that tells me, it's like one of them was kind of kismet, but the other was low hanging fruit. Yeah. Right. And, and that was, so for me, it's like, I could have always had that money. Mm-hmm. Right. It was always sitting there for me. Wow. I just didn't get it. Right. Oh my God. That's so but, good for me to hear because I have similar situations where I just am like, well, I don't know how to ship my work. I have never taken a good photo of this piece. So I'm just going to keep it in my closet for seven years. It's like, what? Like people are like, please, I want to buy this work. And I'm like, no, no, no. It needs to be in my closet collecting dust. So she's helping me shift my mindset just in the group classes, just realizing like, okay, I need to be making more work and think about how I'm representing myself. And yeah, allow these opportunities to come to me and connect with people and follow up so that is like so amazing to hear that story and yeah and it's funny too because then the first one's done right I paid the first installment Uh so now let me pay the second installment (laughs) like I didn't have that so but it was really funny. So on the, co- in the coaching, I'd mentioned to Bridget that I always wanted to have a writing business, you know, or something to do writing for artists. She's like, what does that look like? And I told her, and she goes, okay, next thing I know, like in that session, we made a plan and that, that's a Friday. Okay. That's a Friday. And she's like, okay, I want to see your website and all the language for the website on Sunday. You're launching on Tuesday. Okay, I'm launching on Tuesday. And so I had I spent the whole weekend, like that was my weekend. I was just I put together a web I built a website, I put together the language, she looked at the language, gave me pointers for Monday, I made the changes, I launched on Tuesday. By Thursday, I had a client, by Friday had another client, by the next Sunday had another client, and I had my second installment of money. Oh my god yeah what this writing is what that looks like with the writing i do art writing you know i do like artist packages like artist statements bios i proposals i do editing for them or like or i'll just write them you know Uh, yeah so it's good i have i have a couple clients right now i have a an ongoing client who's in ireland well she's never actually in ireland she's everywhere else but you know so it's it's an interesting my mindset right now is like trying to figure out how i can stop thinking about it as something that takes up too much of my time because Mm -hmm. that's limiting my ability to you know get more clients and that kind of thing that kind of thinking is limiting so i'm trying to find new ways to in my own mind, think about that business because it does take a long time, right? To write things and to try to put yourself in the voice of the person that you're writing for, you know, thinking about what they're thinking about with their own art. But I think, you know, if you're going to have somebody write your artist statement, it has to be an artist, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody who understands those, like what you're going through. Your press pack, that you sent me, I was mm-hmm. just blown away. I was like, this oh, is thanks. so beautiful. I'm just like 
so wonderfully curated and I think through your Instagram, like you are just such a gifted writer and you're really good at all. <laughs> Cause I feel sure. like writing and helping people represent their work in a really, you know, I think sometimes having that other set of eyes and another person mm -hmm. to kind of help you mold that voice and yeah. get more approachable and compelling, I think could be really nice yeah. for people to look at that. Yeah, I also work with people in a way, you know, like I'm very transparent about the cost and that kind of thing. And if I look at somebody's artist statement and I just think they have to make a few adjustments, I'll say, look, I can rewrite this for you, but I can also tell you what's wrong with it. And if you feel comfortable, then you could just pay me a small consulting fee, like $25 or something, and I'll tell you what's wrong with it and you can fix it. And so I've had people do that too and their artist statements are fine they just didn't realize that they were doing x wrong or whatever some people are very able but some people are really frozen by writing you know they become paralyzed by it and i think but they come become paralyzed by it and uh, and it's not a good feeling and if you can have somebody else do it for you or help you with it i mean it's all better i mean i teach writing oh that's amazing that's so exciting well i always wanted to be an artist you know and it wasn't like a career choice it was just always something I knew that I was doing uh, that I wanted to do in my life and I can remember as far back as first grade and verbalizing it people were going I'm gonna be a doctor and we were like actually in art class and I'm gonna be a doctor I'm gonna be like all the you know doctor, firefighter, nurse, like all those things. I'm like, I'm going to be an artist, you know, yeah. and not really fully understanding what that meant. But at, in first grade, really knowing like, oh, I want to be an artist. And then so, at some point I was like, oh, I'm going to be a scientist, you know, like third grade scientist. So I sort of waffled between science and art for a long time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I went to my, <laughs> I took what is, lovingly referred to as a gap year now but back then it was like maybe i'm not going to school year <laughs> ever and so i i did that and, and i got terribly bored after only like a few months and i was like all right i have to go to school and you know my father didn't want me to be an artist you know and you know for the same reasons like you're not gonna have money or whatever and so everybody all the cousins on my dad's side of the family went to school to be engineers and so my dad had it in his head that if i was going to college i was going to go to be an engineer and well i'm really bad at math and i definitely would not have been a successful engineer like if i built anything it would have just exploded or fell apart or something you know <laughs> right so but i remember one day going up into my room and this is high school going up into my room and I kind of locked myself in my room and I did this drawing of a tiger. My maiden name is tiger. Mm -hmm. And so we always had lots of like tigers in the house, obviously. And I went up and I drew this tiger head all out of like stipple and ink or whatever. And I took it down and I gave it to my dad and my dad was like, wow, well, if you want to go to art school, honey, 
you can go. And I was like, wow, okay, so all right, that was easy, not really, but <laughs> you know. And so I ended up going actually for graphic design. Oh, cool. And, uh, and I really liked advertising and that kind of thing, and that was something I really wanted to get into. But I didn't like the hierarchy of graphic design, and, and it just wasn't for me. I hated sort of having to change my ideas to suit somebody else's, you know. And, and hilariously, while I was in graphic, in school for graphic design, I had, I had made so many paintings, me and this other kid, that they had for our senior show, they had a special room just for my paintings and his paintings. And that should have really been the, the thing that was like, oh, wait a minute, I'm actually a painter, not a graphic designer. And, and so I took a couple more years off because that was a four-year school and I took a few more years off and then went back to school for painting at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. And, and you know, I, it, was, it changed the way that I thought about, yeah, I loved school, college, high school was not for me, but I loved college. And so I loved the liberal arts a lot. You know, I loved book learning and, you know, like book learning. And uh, I, you know, I could sit in a classroom and literally feel my head buzzing because I was so excited and learning so much that I didn't know before. It just, I felt like my brain expanding and it was such an exciting experience for me. And then to like, and it really changed the way that I thought about art conceptually and theoretically. And, and so for me, undergraduate school was a really exciting time. I always get a little bummed out when my students aren't having that experience. And I find that students are having that experience less and less because they come with this idea that they just want to do this one thing and they're just cutting off all the other possibilities. It's kind of a shame because I want everybody to have that experience that I had, you know, and that's what sort of drew me to be a, a college professor is to like have students feel that way. And I do have students that get excited about learning and I think that's exciting. Um, but they're, Maybe it was always like that, too, when I was in school. I don't know. It's just I didn't see that because I was in it, you know. Right. Yeah. But I think really, and then I, I didn't do anything. With, I mean, I had a little studio in my house, mm -hmm. and I worked. I painted every single day, and we had, like, a crit group and, like, that after I graduated school. But mm -hmm. I never showed or anything because I thought I wasn't ready, you know. The teachers told me that I wasn't ready. And I believed it. In the meantime, my friend was showing like crazy, you know, and he graduated two years after me. Mm -hmm. And but so, you know, that mindset thing, again, is really important. It's like these people you really respect tell you that you're not ready in whatever concept of not ready is for them. And I didn't question it, but I did. I painted every day. But I didn't go to graduate school until like 2008. Mm -hmm. which is really more recent and to, and that's what changed everything for me how did you decide it, to go and what happened during that time well I hadn't painted in a really long time because I moved to Japan mm -hmm. and it was harder for me to 
paint in the way that I was accustomed to. And, and I really just had to focus on living life because things we take for granted that are so simple, like buying a stamp or just buying something in the grocery store becomes like this total consuming thing. You know, it's like, Oh, I got to go buy a stamp. They're going to say this, then I'm going to say this. And what if I don't understand? Like I would sit in my car before going into the post office, just like get a stamp and go through all this. So it was exhausting. And then when I came back to the States, it was just about sort of readjusting. I brought the husband with me and like figuring out what my life is again. And, uh, and so I didn't paint for a while. And then we had moved to New Jersey and I had, I worked for a woman in New York city and I did Japanese print. I think she wants to be a good person, but she just was not a very nice person. Mm -hmm. And, and so I thought, what am I doing? You know, I'm living this life, like going into New York city every day. I'm not coming home until late. I don't get to see my husband. I don't get to spend any time doing anything else. I don't need to be doing these things. And I quit. And, and so for like a year, I didn't work and I just painted all day long, you know, and I'm grateful that my husband, you know, was working and, you know, allowed me to do that. And then I took a part-time job teaching English at a language school, which I liked quite a lot too. I really liked it a lot. And, but, and then I just decided, I was like, I made all these paintings. I want to go to graduate school. I want to go back to Philadelphia. I don't want to live in New Jersey. New York is such a scene. I just don't want to deal with it. And, and that's what I did. And I went back to the University of the Arts because at the time, uh, they were one of the few places that had one of those low residency programs. And I really needed to be able to be an adult and work and then also do this other thing, you know, Mm -hmm. but I think in the end, the low residency program was really the way to go because it taught me how to go and make a living and also be an artist and how to fit those two things together. And on top of that, it it was an, a, an incredibly professionalizing experience, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah, I learned a lot about being a, a professional there. And so when I came out, when, and for me, that's really what it, it's horrible. I always talk about grad school, you know, as being like the best, worst time I ever had. Yes, I can really, you know? I adore that time. And it was so hard and looking back I'm like how is that hard like I just got to make art every like for me mine was like a three-year just full-time yeah you know I got to teach and make art all the time that's all I did I didn't have a job and it was such a gift and now I'm like how did I think that but anyway yeah Yeah. no I cried every day it was just like I you know because they really tear you down you know, they tear you down so that you can rebuild yourself and figure out who you are. But here's the key. So like if any, <laughs> if anybody's going to grad school, the key is just go to your childhood, start there. And then you, then you can like avoid all of this other stuff because honestly, it's just about taking you back to your childhood and then figuring out like what it is from your childhood that's happening over here on this canvas or happening in this sculpture. You know what I mean? Yeah. Interesting. I think that that's basically what it is. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. That's wow. I had never heard that. 
yeah. analysis of grad school before, and I, I like that. I think that's yeah. Oh, that's things. what I think. <laughs> but and but that's my that was sort of my educational. That was very long. I don't know if people care about these things, but you know that that's sort of my educational experience. But I always knew that I wanted to be an artist. And then I'm curious, kind of looking at your installation work and looking at your work that you've been making recently, I can just see kind of this and seeing the painting behind you, I can see kind of this continuity and just how everything kind of fits together. Like if you were to have a retrospective now, it all makes sense together. And there's like some changes and ebbs and flows. So I'm curious just how your most recent body of work, how that has kind of, where that's come from and what that's about i think working with the panels and kind of working with the the wood and really reacting to that it is really interesting to me and i love your artist statement about that on your website too oh thank you yeah i mean i started working with the wood panels in 2013 and it was it was really just happenstance you know my friend was getting an order and he was trying to collect other people to make orders so it'd be cheaper for him to have it shipped down because they they delivered it and I was like yeah okay I'll take some wood panels sure whatever why not and they arrived and they were so beautiful that I couldn't imagine painting on them you know it's like I'm gonna so I prep I primed them and whatever and I looked at them and I was like well I just what can I do to these that nature hasn't already done, you know? And so that was, so it was troubling because I had a solo show coming up and it was my first solo show. And I'm thinking like, what's this work going to be? Because it, it freaked me out. And, but this, that starts a, a whole way of working actually, where every single solo show I've ever had is I make the work for it like new and it's always this stressful adventure of will I have something to show or not you know and and for that particular for those I don't know I just started thinking about the wood grain and I started thinking about how the wood grain looks like water and how it's a measure of what the tree is taking in. And, and, and over the years, my idea about that has expanded. And I look at it like, you know, metonymically. And I think about how it's, you know, this wood grain is a part of the tree that's a part of the landscape. So this, this tree is actually telling me what that landscape was, you know. I don't really know what that landscape was, but I can get a feeling for the landscape because it's a map inside the tree, you know? Yeah. And so, and then when I think of, you know, so then I started articulating the wood grain with paint and, and it really was just about that at the time. It was about the tree and it was about its wood grain and that's what I was doing. But then later, it started having lots of angles and that kind of thing. And 
then I really understood that I was looking at man's relationship with nature Mm -hmm. and also looking at this natural thing that has now been made unnatural, Mm -hmm. you know, for me to paint. And I, so I started thinking about that because you take this thing that has this beautiful outer shape and it's cut into a, a square and everything we have, you look around your room, everything's angles, everything's a straight line, you know, it's a box. And, and, but, but I'm also really attracted to what man makes, you know, I, I often talk about bridges because bridges for me are just like, they boggle my mind, you know, especially like the really big ones, like the GWB or, and you think like, how, how man made that, you know? And, and, but then that also becomes part of our landscape, right? So we have, and, and it's, it's postcardable and it's, you know, it's something that's shown to like bring you to look at San Francisco, you know, it's like, it's always part of a landscape. It's like, here's the, here's the water, here's the, you know, the, the, I don't, they're not mountains, but like, here's the, the land and here, here's this big orange red thing, you know, that man made. And, and we look at that and go, wow. And, and we love to look at what we have made in relationship to nature. And we love to think about that. And I don't know if that's hubris or if that's a genuine, like, love of the made thing, you know, like we're nature and that's nature and we made this, you know, but I always, I'm always kind of thinking about that, especially incredible things, you know, like buildings and these buildings that go all the way up to the sky. It's just, you know, they're, they're amazing. You know, man made that. That is so interesting to consider. I'm, as you're talking about that, it just makes me think about how, like, I love mowing the lawn. Like, I love a wild lawn, and I love just, like, that act of, like, kind of making everything kind of even and beautiful. And and there is something about, yeah, having those, like, lines that are just perfectly squared off and even and straight and and especially contrasted with the organic quality of... Mm-hmm a plant or you know a tree and so I think it's nice to see that kind of hard-edged line work with the organic things that are happening on the substrate that you're painting onto yeah so so that's sort of you know where those ideas came from and but I they they just keep expanding in different ways you know it's like with my very most recent work, I just had a, a solo exhibition that was cut short by COVID. And, I'm sorry about you know, that. yeah, I mean, it is what it is, right? Like, <laughs> that's nature, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, but, you know, but that work I did on burnt wood panels, you know? Oh, yes. I'm so curious about that as well, because I have done just, a tiny little bit of research about that act of like burning wood as a way of preserving it so that it yeah. then does not burn more. Yeah. Um, I forget. What is the name of that? Oh, for the, it's Shosugiban. Shosugiban. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it looks beautiful yeah. on the panels. Thank you. Yeah, so, I mean, they in Japan, they use it as siding, and it's bug-proof, and it's waterproof. And it's kind of hilarious because, like, what made me think that I could use my <laughs> – my water-based paint on something that repels water. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not sure, like, what was happening in my mind at the time. And it really was interesting because I, the burnt panels were damaged. They're, they're essentially damaged, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not that smooth surface like I'm accustomed to working on. It's yeah. a little bumpy. Um, and it has the, you know, it's charred and it has that same, like when you see something burnt that kind of breaks down into like pieces, yeah. it has all of that. And I'm like, I, how am I gonna do this? You know? And there was nothing I could do, but just do it, you know? <laughs> but also in, in the same, you know, I, I had a solo show coming up. Mm -hmm that I was doing this work for and I had no idea what I was doing. I'm just really grateful and I'm lucky to have these galleries and these curators who trust me enough to just show up with something. And, you know, and even if I myself, I'm just like, I don't know what this is going to be. You know, they kind of just trust that I'm going to figure it out. But so I'm like, all right, well, let's just start working on these. and when I did, you know, it would, it actually just, it, it did absorb some water in some areas it repelled it, especially the very black areas. But in the areas that were just kind of charred, it, it pulled the water in and, and, and subdued the color and the char also mixed with the paint colors. And it was, yeah, it was really interesting. And I, so it was just a different way of approaching what I was doing. And the colors actually ended up being so much more intense against the darkness of the wood and, and, and painting it like everything smelled burnt, you know? So it was this like sensory experience for me, even just painting on them. But I also would like paint on them and then I would take, uh, powdered graphite and grind it into some of the colors to like push it back mm -hmm. you know so it was a total like there were some like you can see some similar concepts happening mm -hmm. like the voc my vocabulary is there but mm -hmm. I can assure you that the approach was like a hundred percent different because every time I tried something it was never it never turned out the way I expected and I just kind of had to you know roll with it so yeah. I'm curious how you burned the panels to begin with what did that look I, like oh no I did not so oh. I oh there's this um so there's a guy named uh Doug Matlaga I guess that's how you say his last name and he owns Green Hill and he I've been wanting to work with him for years to build panels for me but he's always so busy because like the art museum uses him and like he's busy for real. Mm -hmm. And, and my orders are not going to be big enough to satisfy him. But like I called when I got back from Iceland and I had been wanting to do these kinds of panels for a long time. Well, I, 
when I was in Dubai, so I was, I had, a, I had, I had paintings in a, in an exhibition at Sharjah Art Museum in the United Arab Emirates. And that was back in 2011. Oh. And so when I was in Dubai, because oil was such a big part of that, you know, situation, I, I just wanted, and, and there's a lot of opulence there. And I just wanted to like, do things in black and gold. And I had this desire to do that. But when I came back from there, I never did. And then, but then when I, when it, when I was in Iceland, there's so much black everywhere, like everywhere because it's volcanic. So the ground is black. And there were some places that like were so utterly otherworldly black that it, it shocked And so I had a real desire to burn my panels there and I didn't, but I had the desire. So when I came back, I, I contacted him and I was like, Hey, this is what I want to do. How do you feel about it? And he was so excited. He's like, yeah, I want to do that. So he built the panels for me and it's history from there. <laughs> but yeah. So, I mean, when I'm looking at, you know, the burnt panels came in this, I had, I had written a proposal for the Guggenheim mm -hmm. uh, that dealt with deforestation and that, and, and, and actually, let me just tell you that those burnt wood panels sat in my studio for a year before I touched them. Oh, interesting. I had them made, everything, and then I kept looking at them going, I don't know what you are. Like, uh -huh. you know, they sat there. I looked at them every time I was in the studio. And then I was like, I'm not touching you. Not yet. And I just didn't know what to do with them, you know? And so, it, so it's not like I just have this idea and then I start on things. Sometimes they have to like sit and brew in my brain for a while. But when I wrote the Guggenheim proposal, it really, obviously I didn't get it but the but the the act of writing that was so important because it coalesced a lot of ideas for me and that's why writing is so important for artists even if mm -hmm. artists are afraid of writing like yeah. everybody should keep a journal or everybody should like sit down and really write about their work or write about what they're doing or their ideas about what they're doing. Nobody else has to see it, but it's really important because I'll tell you when you have to take like what's in your brain and put it out onto paper, it, it's, it changes the way you think about your own work. And like I said, that proposal coalesced a lot of ideas for me. And the result was the solo show of the paintings that came mm -hmm. from that. And, and I actually knew, like, once I did that proposal, I actually knew how to start those paintings, and I did. So... Was there something they asked in the proposal that you feel like kind of sparked your ability to write about it or think about it in a new way? No. I, I wanted to write uh, for the Guggenheim. I did, you know... A couple years ago, I wanted to, and I sat down and I looked at like who they were looking at. And I was like, you know what? I'm not ready yet. I don't have all these things yet. I'm just not ready. 
And so I, I did all these residencies and I did this other stuff and I thought I'm ready now. And, and then when I sat down in front of, you know, the, the prospectus or whatever you want to call it to sit down to start thinking about my proposal or whatever, I'm like, I don't have any ideas. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. But then I, and you know, you, it, it happens every year. Like it's due in September or something like that. And it's coming up again. Are you going to apply again? I don't know. Maybe. It has to be work that you have not made yet. Like, does it have to be an idea for a new project? Or could it be about the work that you've already made? It can be about the work you've already, it it could be anything. It could be the work you already made. It could be about a project you want to do. But when I sat down to like, in like May, I sat down to like, think about it. And I was like, I nothing nothing in my brain and then i read i read the hidden life of trees Mm. and i read the spell of the sensuous which oh my god is just one of the most beautifully written books it's amazing oh you have to but even like the hidden life of trees i was like walking down the street going like really like it brought out that thing in me, like that when they call people like tree huggers, like I felt it. I'm like, Oh, you're so sad here in the city, in this concrete. And I, and I could feel their kind of pain, you know, like I read that book and I'm like, I see your pain. And it it felt like it it was like really weighing on me. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the deforestation, because that's when like last year and I was right in like, Australia fires had happened and you know and then reading a lot about deforestation and thinking about you know connecting to this to this thing this living thing that I can't talk to like we're talking you know but in thinking about that and thinking about how we use things or I don't know it just started me thinking on all of these ideas and the deforestation and the burning, it just made me understand what I wanted to do with those panels, you know? Yeah. So, and, and those panels, like nobody has to know what my idea was behind those panels. And I think people can have an experience with them, Mm -hmm. but my intention in making them was to really sort of address, you hear my cat, (laughs) to us really to address some of these things that were weighing on my conscience, you know, and deforestation is one of them for sure, you know, and I, I was raised, I was raised in the middle of nowhere, you know, I grew up in an, in a wooded area and school was like an hour away that kind of thing yeah so you were a little forest fairy yeah i mean we grew (laughs) our food and all that so it so you know and i think talk going back to what i was saying about grad school and and all of that like i really think the thing that you don't have anymore or the thing that sort of formed you as a child ends up being the thing that you focus on you know I live in center city Philadelphia and even though I'm right near the park a park is not the woods you know and it's not the 
experience of the wilderness that I had as a child. I mean, I, we could see the Milky Way every night. Amazing. You know? And that was not something, I mean, after I, if I had known as a child that I would never see the Milky Way in my everyday life, I, I feel like I would wanted to have appreciated it more, you know, and, you know, but the lights drown it out. And I, I had that experience. I went to Peru with my best friend, Joan, and that was 2006. And we went to Pocaratambo and there was the Milky Way. I was like, oh my God, there you are. You're still there. You're still there. I just can't see you. And, and it was so, it was such like, it, you know, it was such a nostalgic feeling. And then it, but it made me also kind of like weep for our predicament in so many ways because we're so out of touch. I mean, how many people have never seen it ever, like ever, you know? And it just makes me think like, there's so much that we're missing as humans in this, this, I like living in the city. Don't get me wrong, you know, because I like being around people, but it's, we're just missing out on so much now, you know, and we're taking away so much and it's really, it's painful to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I can see just these threads of compassion and connection to the environment and to other people and yeah you see these different ways of you working too it's like writing and teaching and making art and connecting to the environment and I can just see all these threads are there ways that is there a way you can or a prompt that you often give your students to help them kind of find their way and pull these, pull their threads together to make their work? Yeah, that's a really, that's a great question. And nobody's ever asked me about the teaching aspects. For me, the most important thing that the, the most important thing I can do, or like the gift that I can give students is critical thinking, right? Mm -hmm. So to teach them to be critical thinkers. And so I'll present them with texts or things that are might be important to me but I always want to see where it leads them you know and I think that I think you know when you're these guys are just starting out right so and there's so much that there's so much that they have yet to learn and I teach freshmen there's so much more that they have to learn And I always sort of keep that in the back of my mind. And so I always think of my teaching as planting seeds for later, you know, Mm -hmm. that I am like, I'm giving them the tools to like do these things, but that I know that I'm not going to benefit from seeing maybe, you know, unless, I mean, I do have former students that I still, they're still in my life, you know, five, six, seven years later they're they're right there you know but i may not always see the benefit of the seeds that are planted but i think it's important to plant them and you know i they're not always ready to hear the things or to learn the things that you want them to learn at that time and one of the 
most hilarious things, and this is just really simple, is I, I had some students, and recently I posted something on my private Instagram where people, somebody had a bumper sticker that said, like, less, you know, more trees, less idiots, something like this. And, and I like corrected it. I was like, more trees, fewer idiots. And then I explained why. And it was just like this silly thing. But I can't even tell you how many students, former students that I had that contact me like, wow, thank you. I didn't know that. And I'm like, no, I definitely taught you that in my class, but they weren't ready to hear it until now or ready to appreciate it until now, you know? And, I taught a class called, uh, it was a thing at the school, but what I, we picked our theme was beauty. And the main book that we used was Crispin Sartwell's Six Names of Beauty, which I also recommend quite a lot. I love it. The students hated it. The students hated it. Oh, they hated it. They just thought, they just didn't get it. And it's okay. They're, like I said, they were freshmen. So they just didn't get it. And I showed them all these different things. But what's funny is that was their freshman year and they fought me all the way. Mm. And then I had students, they're finally their juniors, and I get these emails. Hey, Professor Keisha, what was the name of that thing that you showed that time and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, now you care about it, you know? <laughs> and, and so they're just, they just, they're, they're being like bombarded with so much information that they yeah. don't really have time to absorb and reflect. And it's not until they get into their, deeper into their studio classes that the things that I was showing them have deeper meaning for them, yeah. you know? And so I don't know if that answers your question at all, but I think that, I think that the way to pull the strings together mm-hmm. is just to start unraveling it a little. Like first you have to unravel that string and then they can take it and connect it to something else. And that's, you know, that's really, that's really what I think education should be. Anyway, I know what things will look like, you know, as we're in COVID, are you still planning on teaching in the fall or do you know yeah. what that's going to look like? Yeah. I'm teaching two, uh, three classes, but it's virtual. I'm mm-hmm. teaching an honors class and uh, and a second year semester for students who are who either finished you know they're either transfer students or they need to repeat it or something and so it'll be interesting because if you could take a student who didn't want to be there and make them excited about being there well mission accomplished right yeah, absolutely yeah but it's totally virtual and uh it was virtual in the spring as for part of the spring and uh, yeah it's we're meeting fewer hours together and a lot of it's going to be done via pre-recorded things or powerpoints and that kind of uh thing it's it's different some students really excel in in the virtual world because they can pick their times and they can do things when they want to do them and some students just flounder they don't they're, they need the structure and the schedule and to be able to be successful. So we'll see what this semester yields. I'm hoping that, you know, people are responsible and do the things that they need to do so that we can get on with our lives. 
Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's it. But otherwise, we're just going to perpetually be in this kind of, uh, I don't know, it's just like space where nobody's yeah. healthy and nobody's sick or like, you know, it's just like this weird yeah. space where we can't, we can do things, but not do things. No, it's too it's much. very confusing. It's, yeah, it's really tricky. I'm curious if you have um, advice that you would give yourself five years ago or that you have for students or for artists who are trying to kind of pull their, pull themselves up and really work on their professional development. Cause I feel like you're very good at making a beautiful, cohesive body of work and presenting yourself professionally. And so I'm curious kind of if you have any advice for people to kind of step forward in that way. Yeah. So for artists, I think it's really important to have a dedicated art space. That's number one. And I don't care if it's in your house or if it's outside of your house, but you need a dedicated space mm -hmm. and you have to treat it like it's like sacred almost like this is my creation space and this is what I do in this space and like spend time in that space. Even if you aren't going to paint, you know, even if you feel like painting today, you got to go to the space and you got to sit in that space because if you don't sit in the space, then nothing will happen. Right. So if you stay home and you watch TV, you definitely not, there's no possibility for creating. But if you go to the space, even if you just go and sit there or you read or do whatever, the potential for making something, because you might look over at a painting and go, oh my God, that needs green. And you jump up and you can just throw some green on and then go back to what you were doing, even if you don't feel like sitting and painting, you know? But the, possi you, the possibility is not there if you don't go. But the space is important. And, you know, I've reached the point in my life, like I just moved to a new space mm -hmm. and I've just reached the point in my life where I don't think the dirty old warehouse is romantic anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so I have this kind of new professional space and it's a whole different way of thinking. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I love it. It's better than my house and it's so many ways, but, but it feels good to be in there and it's taken me a while to figure out, who I am in that space also because it's a it's a much cleaner space than I'm accustomed to and and I don't but you know uh, anyway dedicated space because that's the that's the pathway to professionalism you know is having a dedicated space mm. and um and having other people respect that space as yours yeah. You know, especially if it's in your house or your garage or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the best advice, but no, that's, I think for that's me, super helpful. yeah, because you, you can't, you know, if no, you can't be an artist. If you can be an artist all you want, you can sit and paint all day long. And if that's all you want to do, you want to paint, all, I'm a painter. So like you want to paint all day long, aces, you're an artist, right? But if you want to do anything with it, if you want to share it with the world, I just don't understand making work and not sharing it with the world. And I did that for so long, right? I did that for so long. And I think that the other side to that, okay, so getting a dedicated space, 
I had a dedicated space right out of college and I didn't show my work. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think you have to make those moves to show your work, to get people in, to take a look at it, you know, because I just don't know who you're making it for. If you're not making it for others to see, I just Mm -hmm. don't know. And then the other part of that is, is to listen to your professors, listen to your mentors, but then do what you think is best. Because I listened to my professors who I respected intensely and it really put me behind in my career, I think. Mm -hmm. But I can't, you can't look backwards, but I think like you really do have to understand because the reality is, and it's a sad reality, but your professors are also your competition in the art world. And while they want to help you and do things, there's always that little thing in the back of their minds that's like, oh, this is really good, you know? And so let me, you know, there's like that thing that makes you want to squish other people, right? And I think, um, so I think that, you know, I even had a professor like with my good friend who was being very successful when I wasn't, I don't know what, again, successful, I'm putting in air quotes you know, I was showing his work to one of our former professors and the professor's like, oh, he's just making couch paintings for New Yorkers, for rich New Yorkers. And I thought, wow, that was sour, you know? And then that, re- that made me realize like, oh, well, first of all, what are we making the work for if it's not to enjoy in your living space, you know? Yeah. It it just, there was a lot going on there. And so I think, you know, it's part of the reason I don't teach art, Mm -hmm. you know, and I teach writing because I'd rather have students think about art than teach them to make it because I think it's a dangerous thing. But I do mentor and I do always have interns in my studio and I do help them. I introduce them to people. I help them put together websites. I really give them a professional practices experience because I really want them to have what I didn't have. And I really want them to feel empowered because I didn't feel empowered at all. You know? Yeah. yeah. I love that you're able to kind of build those experiences for people and realize what you didn't have and then help to create that. That's super exciting. What's your vision moving forward? But if I think about for my practice, I mean, I did sign a five-year lease. Yeah. Awesome. But that, that's optimistic, you know? So that was like signing a five-year lease is a very big commitment for studio space. Yeah. But I really think that the next five years is going to be an important shift in my career, you know, and it's like I said before, the the space is professionalizing. So there's just more that I can do in that space. And I feel comfortable having curators and clients and you know, that come to this space. The other space I was in before, I mean, I don't know if you know that much about Kensington in Philadelphia. Just a teeny bit, but not much. I just felt like that, there was just, there were just limits to what I was able to do mm-hmm. in a space like that. And I only moved four minutes north. Yeah. Right. 
four minute drive north, but it's amazing how much different it is. And it's also amazing when you have landlords, oh hi, when you have landlords who care about the building and care about the people in the building. And I can tell you when I was out looking for studio spaces, and this is another mindset thing, but, um, but you know, when I went out, so I had this idea in my head, I spent four years at that other studio and it was a big space, you know, it it was comparable to what I have. Mm. And, but with my mindset, I just didn't think that I would get another studio. Like I just didn't think that. I would be able to, and I don't know what that was about. And that was also like financial stuff in the back of my head going like, you're not worthy of this bigger space or this nicer space or whatever. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. And so I just never looked and I put up with a lot that I didn't have to put up with. Mm-hmm. And when I went out looking for spaces and when I was contacting people mm-hmm. and I did a whole thing where I sent them my website and all this stuff. I'm going to tell you something that really shocked me. People fought to have me. Okay. Spaces that had waiting lists, right. We're saying, come on in and have a look. I have something and then fighting over me. And I thought, wow, this is not the experience I expected to have, but they saw something. They saw a professional in me that I didn't see in myself. Right. Yeah. Or, or something that they wanted, they wanted something that I had as part of their building, you know, mm-hmm. and that I didn't see myself. And so I think like, that's a wake up call, you know, so you have to really trust that what you're doing is important. And you have to believe in yourself, you know, and you have to know that, you know, you, you can have something better, you know, and, and I had put the, a deposit down in one place that I thought, oh yeah, it's a smaller space, but it's closer to my office and I can go every day after work or something. I can make it a really daily practice. Mm-hmm. And, and then I called the other place and said, the place I'm at now. And I was like, you know, I, I put a deposit down, but thank you for your time. And I got a, a, the owner like of the building, you know, who called me and had a long conversation with me. And then, and then the leasing agent called me and was like, is there anything that we can do to get you into a space over here? Like, can you come take a look? I just want to show you what we have. And I'm like, whoa, this is not the experience I expected. I expected to be like begging, you know, or I expected, because like you just hear all these things about wait lists and you know, and not being able to get in. And I I don't know. And that just wasn't my experience. So did you have like an affirmation or a mantra or something that you say to kind of help yourself through your days or like how you, how did that come about? Do you think? Well, with the studio, Mm -hmm. I literally don't know. All I can say is that I was focusing on I need, you know, not I need is that I'm going to have a new studio. Like that was sort of my focus because the space I was at was becoming, the situation was untenable. It was just like my, the last year was really, so that, that last year was so awful 
for me that there was really no other choice. I just focused on it and I had it in my mind that that's what I was doing. And I just started contacting people. And what the realization is, is it's, that's very similar to the low hanging fruit conversation, right? Because the money, the low hanging fruit's always there. Yeah. You know, you just, it's just about picking it, right? The same thing, that studio, there was always a studio there for me. My friends had moved to that studio space three years prior to me moving, right? Yeah. And, and they ran down as soon as they heard I was looking for a space, they ran down and talked to the owners right away, right? And so, you know, and then when I finally get there, like, we've been waiting for, you know, like my friends who had moved over there, like, we've been waiting for you. And it's like, yeah, like, what took me so long? So, so the possibility for me to be in that space had always been there and I just didn't act. And I think that's really the thing is like recognizing your limiting thinking or your limited thinking or like, you know, concepts or ideas about yourself and then saying, well, even I just think like you have to say, okay, even if people say no or it's kind of a crappy experience, I just have to try. Because if I don't try, I'll never know that I can, right? And that's, so that's really what I think is really important. That's helpful to consider. Is like, yeah. look at your limiting beliefs, look at like what you believe you deserve and then reevaluate because it's usually, could use some adjusting. Yeah, I mean, it's usually not true. You know, then you got to go look for somebody else. you right. And say, oh, well, maybe what, maybe they're wrong. Maybe I'm, maybe this is, you know, cause if you feel it, try it. Yeah. The worst thing anybody can say ever is no. And that's just not that big a deal in the reality of the world. Yeah. It's like, so what? Move on. Someone yeah. else. Will yeah. This is it. It's the worst thing anybody can say. And if you can just get used to hearing no and going, yeah, all right then you're that much closer. Fear is such a, a crippling thing that keeps us all just doing things that we don't want to do. And yeah. it's based off of belief systems that sometimes aren't real, you know? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just, it's, yeah, for real. So true. Well, I want to honor your time, Michelle. I'm curious if there's yeah. um, anything else coming up you want to be sure to talk about? Oh, and just as I say that, I'm thinking of artist statements and artists writing about their work. If there's any uh-huh. like big faux pas or like big prompts oh. or suggestions that call out to you to that people could do to work on their own writing. Sure. So one of the biggest problems that I see with artist statements or bios is that they're too long. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the other thing, so you really have to think about what's most important or they're not concrete enough, right? So they have to communicate with somebody, right, about what your art is. And so they must be concrete and they must be letting the other person. So when you write, you're always writing for somebody else. Unless you're writing in a private journal, you're not, everything is for somebody else. And, and if you, you have to get beyond the idea 
that you're afraid to write or that writing should be a certain way. And you all, all you have to do is think about communicating and that's it. And it can be simple, right? We're living a global culture now and there are people who aren't always going to understand English. This isn't about flowery language. This is about concrete, you know, functional language, you know, that everybody can understand. And one of the, the best examples I can give my father who doesn't really know anything about art. Okay. I was in create magazine and I took a copy over to them and my dad was leafing through and really engaging with it. And he said to me, he's like, Whoa, artists really think a lot about their work. <laughs> and that sounds silly to us, right? Sure. Cause we're artists and it's like, duh, dad. But it really was an epiphany for him. And that was the, he was communicated with. He saw something in artists and art through the writing that he wouldn't have seen just by looking at pictures of art, right? Yeah. And, and had a deeper appreciation for what he was looking at. And so that's how you have to think about it. You've got to think about the person who, I mean, obviously you want to think about the people you're trying to get to show your work, they're a little bit more sophisticated. But if the but if the guy sitting on the lazy boy watching football every weekend, never doing anything with art, has a deeper appreciation for what you're doing through what you're writing, then the person that you're trying to get to put your art in a gallery is definitely going to understand what you're doing, right? Yeah. Whoa, writing that's... is communication. Yeah. Whoa, I love that. That is such yeah. a great reminder. Yeah, get outside of your head, write it for somebody else. Concrete. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. Oh, there was something else you had written that you're growing tomatoes. And oh, yeah. <laughs> I just had to, I just was curious if there's, if you want to talk about that at all, what it's been like growing things. I do. I do. You know, when COVID, I, it's kind of funny because I had always been really engaged in my garden when I first moved into this house. The garden was really important to me. And my very good friend, Jessica, I'm also an early morning person. Mm -hmm. And so I would be out looking at my garden with my cup of tea and I'd look down a few yards and there's Jessica outside with her coffee or tea. <laughs> and then we would just like go to each other's, it's like 5 a.m. and we're like looking at each other's gardens. And it was, it was like this really loving experience. And then my kitty then my kitty had gotten cancer and, and I was always taking her outside because she couldn't jump or anything, but she really loved the leaves falling. And so I used to take her out there. And then once she passed away, I just couldn't make it into the backyard anymore. Mm. And it was really, it was a really difficult reminder of loss. Even though like the, the garden is this is about life and new life, I just couldn't get past it. So my neighbors started gardening in my garden. And mm -hmm. and that was nice. I mean, in one way it was like, hey, take care of your yard and if you can't, I will. <laughs> but in another way it was like a nice thing to like take it and, and I expressed to her why I was wasn't doing it. And so and she loved the garden. And so she was just doing it for me. Mm -hmm. And then when COVID hit, well, then my neighbor 
moved away. And I'm like, well, who now who's going to do the garden, right? <laughs> who's going to do the garden? Well, then COVID hit and the only place that I could get outside of this house was to go out into the garden in the backyard, right? Yeah. And so so COVID actually has brought me back to that special place. This is horrible to say, but it brought me back to that special place of like the garden and growing and, and to see possibility and future. And I just got so excited about life, you know, and the making life or, you know, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I don't have kids, but it was just like, this like making life or watching something grow got really exciting for me. And so the tomatoes, I had purchased these heirloom organic tomatoes and they were so delicious. They're green and they're just like a little red on the inside. And that was last year. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to save these seeds. I mean, I was saving them for my brother to grow them because I definitely wasn't going to be in the garden, right? Like that wasn't a thing. And uh, yeah, anyway, so that's how it started. I, I, I was like, you know what? I've got those seeds and I pulled those seeds out and, and I was having, they were such a bugger, you know, my garden is really beautiful. I'm really good at like begonias and oh, sedum cool. and like ferns. Like I have this very robust green garden of just like things to look at and not things to eat, but the tomatoes are so consuming. <laughs> I go out there every morning and so, so they started, they started getting blossoms and I was really excited. I'm like, yay, tomatoes are going to happen. And they just kept dropping blossoms and I was frustrated and I kept, I would email my dad in the morning, dad, what's happening? Why I'm doing everything right. You know, because we grew up growing food. So this isn't an unusual thing for me, but right. the, but this particular problem was and so what it turns out is that the we don't have enough pollinators mm. right in this area and which is scary and sad but it really shows you like like you don't understand how important the bees are until you're trying to grow some tomatoes <laughs> because wow. you know they're so important and so initially I was like this, I went out, I bought coneflowers and bee balm and all this stuff. And I put them near the tomatoes, hoping that that would usher them to the tomato blossoms, but they still were dropping. And so then my dad said, oh, well, you know, I found this video, maybe you should watch it. And tomatoes have both parts in them. So they just need them to be shaken together so that they can make the fruit. And so I'm out there every morning looking like a lunatic with my electric toothbrush, pollinating, <laughs> pollinating the blossoms. It's the, I, like, I, think, I always try to imagine like what my neighbors are thinking if they're looking out the window and I'm out there with an electric toothbrush. It's hilarious. And it worked. And I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, right. That, well, that's what they chalk it up to, you know. And then, but now I've got two really beautiful tomatoes growing, and and there's some more that are on their way. I can see them, and so so it's you know really I don't know. I'm totally excited about this, and I'm like this proud mama 
for these tomatoes. It's like, do I eat it or do I bronze it? You know, it's like, I, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, oh, it shouldn't. That. Yeah. But, you know, also the, but it does make me think, you know, like it probably shouldn't be that difficult really in the reality of things. And so it's just another reminder of our connection to nature and how important it is and what we're losing, you know, when the bees are gone. Yeah. Food's gone and we can't be running around pollinating crops with electric toothbrushes. Is that the new, like, is that the new crop share job? You know, is like, you've got people who are the pollinators and they just run around being the human bees or something. I don't know. Amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That's yeah. so, <laughs> I was like, I need to know more. When I got your email, I was like, I want to know more about these tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll send you a picture once. Once I can, you know, pick it or harvest it, it's, it's a, it's been a labor of love for sure. And, and I think that the best thing to come out of COVID for me is the reconnection with my yard and reconnection with growing and, and it really makes me feel possibility in this incredibly tragic time. You know, there's just something so hopeful about growing a plant and there's something even more incredible about growing something that nourishes you right yeah. that uh, to me it's just like it's like the you know you look at the sun and I don't know I, I mean I'm just kind of for me it's just this incredible experience of possibility and with everything that's going on in the world and Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, and, you know, it's to, to be in the garden and know that there's possibility, even when there's difficulty, is, is really uplifting for me, and it's a daily practice, you know? Thank you. That's so, so beautiful and so inspiring and wonderful to have that kind of glimmer of hope and that reminder that, yes, things are growing and they're transforming and we can be innovative and yeah. move forward. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I love chatting with you and just like hearing more about your stories and your travels and your work and your process. And yeah, I feel like I could just talk to you forever. But I'm I know, right? <laughs> or I could like you could just like I'm, I'm talking at you really. This is a problem I have. I'm a chatter and not a listener. So I apologize for that. Oh, but no, I'm I'm better at listening, so I think that <laughs> so it works out. But I, um, <laughs> I just feel like if I was in an ancient culture or something, I would be, like, the storyteller or something. You know, like, I'd be that person who, like, the keeper of the stories or, <laughs> or something. I don't know. I always feel like that. I think that's probably why you're a powerful writer and a powerful artist, because you can kind of pull in those stories and kind of translate it and consider what people want to hear and what they want to listen to and what is needed to be spoken. So yeah. I could see. Oh, thanks. That's beautiful. Yeah, you're I just want to give space for how can people connect with you? And is there any, anything else coming through you want to be sure to share during this time? Yeah. So people can visit my Instagram if they want to see like works in progress. And I'm, it's just Michelle Kishta and it's Michelle with one L and my website is just Michelle And my writing website's Michelle 
So I, I try to brand myself by just using my name, make it a lot easier for people. And currently in a show, an online show with the painting center in New York city. And, um, yeah, it's like, it's for people who are like, who used to be a part of the painting center or who are in their, um, portfolio thing. So yeah, that's, it's nice. I have a lot of stuff going on. It's just almost too much to, to think about. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. you. I love chatting with you. So yeah, Michelle, thank you so much for making time and for sharing so many beautiful stories and so much about your work. It's really inspiring. And yeah, it makes me want to pull things together in a new way. Yay. Well, thank you so much. And uh, let's talk again soon. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please be sure to connect with Michelle on Instagram. You can connect with me as well. Time in the Studio podcast. And if you want, you can sign up for my newsletter on my website. That's timeinthestudio.com. And if you're digging the show, please share the episode with a friend who you think would appreciate it and like it. Uh, You could also share it to your stories if you're on Instagram or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And it only takes like two minutes and it means the world to me and really helps other people find the show as well. So thank you so much for those efforts. And if you enjoy the show and you're in a secure place financially, please consider supporting this work and you can help amplify the voices of creatives and plant people. You can join my Patreon at patreon.com slash time in the studio and I donate over 10% of my Patreon funds to Crafting the Future and the Earthseed Collective presently. And there's some fun goodies, little bonus secret invocations and transcriptions and writing prompts and affirmations and yeah, all kinds of little goodies. So I'm building that and adding to that each week and you can, I'm just leaving it open so you can donate at any level and yeah, just be a supporter so yeah that's super appreciated and makes a huge huge difference thanks again for being here i appreciate your presence and your listening and i hope you have a wonderful week and may our effort may our efforts benefit all beings